Hey everyone, and welcome to the 51st episode of The Liam McCollum Show. All right, everyone, so Kelly Vlahos from Responsible Statecraft at the Quincy Institute joined me to talk about two of her recent articles. We also talk about the mission of Responsible Statecraft. They're really doing some awesome stuff over there. The first article we talk about is on a report by Axios titled Trump's post-election coup was against his runaway generals. And the second article is titled, It's time to put this dysfunctional U.S.-Israel relationship to the test. We get a bit into Afghanistan at some point in the interview, and I ask her whether or not she thinks that we're going to leave by September 11th. I'll link to these articles as well as her new podcast that she co-hosts with Daniel Larrison and Barbara Boland called Crashing the War Party. I highly recommend listening to their podcast and reading everything that comes out of Quincy and Responsible Statecraft. And remember to like, subscribe, and give me a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Here's Kelly. All right, well, Kelly, welcome to the show. Thank you, Liam. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, it really is a pleasure. You know, I've had a few reporters from Responsible Statecraft on just in the past couple of months, and I'm wondering if you'll tell the listeners who you are and what the responsible what Responsible Statecraft is trying to do, what their goal is, as well as I guess how they've been received in DC. Sure. Well, I mean, I think it's best that I tell you how I got involved in it because it it kind of highlights why it exists. And in part, um, I had been working for a long time writing for the American Conservative Magazine, uh, writing a lot about foreign policy and the war, uh, the global war on terror. So I've been kind of at it since about 2007. And I knew Trita Parsi from a lot of the work that I had done through the American Conservative and covering issues that ranged all the way through, you know, uh, Iran and the nuclear deal in 2015. And when I, uh, what he wanted to start Quincy, he had approached me and kind of gave me the pitch about, you know, building a institution that would not only appeal to anti-war folks on the left, but all of those conservative non-interventionists and realists on the right who I had been writing for, basically that was that was the American conservative audience for, for all that time. And the American conservative had been a, around since 2002 uh, in the run-up to the uh, Iraq war. Pat Buchanan, uh, Scott McConnell had, had started that magazine basically to oppose the neoconservative drive to war in Iraq. And so uh, they, th- that whole audience is really ripe for the argument that there was something really rotten about our, our US foreign policy and had been going on for some time, but especially after the fall of the Soviet Union, that the, the military industrial complex had sort of re-engineered itself away from you know, the war on communism and had been looking and seeking out new monsters to destroy ever since and after 9-11, uh, that sort of brought that unfortunate gift to the military industrial complex in the form of a sort of a Muslim insurgency or war on Islam, uh, whatever you call it, you know, what was whatever the phrase du jour was back then. And so we had we were finding ourselves in this repeated cycle of uh, interventionism, but justified through this idea that the Americans need, to lead the sort of uh, liberal spread of democracy, protecting liberty and freedom across the globe. And we needed to get out of this cycle and we needed smart people and active voices and, and, and basically courageous uh, 
sort of intervention, if you will, into the Washington establishment to say, we've had enough of this. It, it's not working. We can see that in our failed war policy in Iraq, our failing war policy in Afghanistan, all of the new conflagrations that our wars started in the Middle East that are still going on, the displacement of millions of people throughout the globe, uh, and, and all the way to the, our own U.S troops that have come home, uh, millions who have cycled in and out of those wars, coming home uh, with injuries, uh, both physical and mental, and the strain that it's put on their families. This has continued for 20 years. So I think, you know, the, the, uh, the founding of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft came at a real pivoted moment, pivotal moment, in which Americans were looking around and saying, um, this, this isn't working. And we've, we've, we've been listening to the government and the elites in Washington tell us for too long that, that war was the answer, that in, the military intervention was the answer in order to make us safe at home. We don't feel any safer, but we have watched our deficits go up. We have watched our uh, armed forces be strained and we feel like rubes at this point and because it looks like all this is done as is benefited to military industrial complex and caused more uh, dis, uh, instability overseas. And so I think we came into that and I think we're doing a great job at making those arguments on Capitol Hill, uh, making those arguments outside the beltway um, with really great scholarship from people who actually understand the region and uh, people who have, um, you know, uh, who are trained to sort of communicate these issues. So I'm, I've, I sort of came in in the middle of all this as a, as a journalist and an editor um, and somebody who's been you know, on both sides of the aisle working for years that I tried to you know, basically, I, I run the um, Responsible Statecraft magazine, which is, is a media platform for all of these ideas. We have external and internal people writing for us, uh, but no neocons allowed. <laughs> And I, you know, I, we're getting a message out there. So that's, that's kind of where I fit into all of that. Yeah. And I've definitely be, been seeing the responsible statecraft articles get around, like even on campus here at my university or, you know, politicians seem to be saying certain arguments that I read out of responsible statecraft. So I'm really yeah. happy to see it. And just to kind of dive into how corrupt the war party is, um, the first article I brought you on to talk about is, is this one on an Axios report. And the headline is Trump's post-election coup was against his runaway generals. I find that very fascinating. It's a really good headline um, because while people were talking about this, this coup, this post-election coup, um, there was an actual coup trying to be attempted that you and I may have actually supported. <laughs> It's, 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 it's incredible because I, you know, as you remember after the November elections, there was a huge shakeup at the Pentagon and the, Trump was bringing in a lot of his allies and forcing a lot of resignations. I think there are five resignations, but that included the secretary of defense, Mark Esper. And he brought in people like Doug McGregor, who is a, a, a brilliant retired colonel who has been critical of the U.S. war policy since the beginning. I met I met Doug back like in the 9/11 period, you know, and I've been friends with him ever since because he he is just he has felt, you know, rightly 
that every step that the uh, the military has taken since 9-11 has been a wrong one. So he comes in with the with, with Trump to try to shake things up, you know, after the election. But the the reporting that was going on in in Washington was that Trump was probably maybe planning some sort of coup and, you know, installing all of his friends that suddenly he would say, I'm not leaving, you know, and I got the military's, you know, support. And there were a lot of um, op-eds and, you know, speculation about that. And then it turns out what we all believed all along is that he really wanted to get out of these wars. You know, he inherently believed that, but also he felt like it was his revenge against these generals like General Mattis and General H.R. McMaster and General Milley, who is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and in Mark Esper, uh, who is former military too. And he's basically saying, you know what, I'm going to get out of all these wars before I leave. And that includes Afghanistan, that includes Iraq, Syria, Germany, and, um, and what was the other one? Uh, Syria, Iraq, Germany. Africa. 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 And he, and he handed, uh, he had his guy hand dug a, a memo, and this is all in the Axios report, saying, I, I want to get out of all of these places by the time I leave office. And Doug's like, you know, that's a tall order, but let's do it. You're going to have to, you have to craft an actual presidential memorandum and order, get it, you know, have it signed. And then, then we can execute this, sir. And what happened was it, it, it got passed around to all of the, the top officials and they said, we're not doing this. We can't do this. So the actual memorandum, once it started going through different hands and the, the guys got to, to Trump and pointed all the ways that he wouldn't possibly be able to do this, the memorandum, with that, that, that the final one that was signed was actually a much watered down piece of um, uh, you know, uh, letter uh, to his generals. And basically saying, okay, we'll get out of Afghanistan by the 15th, but only by 2,500 troops. And, you know, uh, we got out of, we, we shifted troops out of Somalia, but they're going to other places. But the, the orders in, for Germany never, you know, were never finalized or they, or they weren't finally executed by the time he left. And Syria was never mentioned. And there was a modest drought down in, in, in Iraq. So what happened was the generals got their way, you know, so I had written that piece because that's what I got out of it, it was a, it was a very exhaustive report um, that told that basically gave you the feeling of all this, all this back channel stuff that's going on, and how the generals really um, reacted poorly to to Trump but some of it was his own doing. I mean, Trump uh, was, a, as you know, a divisive character, his foreign policy didn't jibe with these military guys who did not want to leave these wars. They felt like it would be a disaster if we got out of Afghanistan or totally got out of Afghanistan. They still believe that. And so, you know, when it came down to it, you know, he was outnumbered and, uh, but not outranked. Uh, so, you know, there you go. It's, it's an interesting piece of, of, I guess, what you would call palace intrigue. Uh, but it does give you some insight on how powerful the military is. And for, you know, even up against the commander in chief, they're able to stymie and thwart and stall uh, any efforts to get out of wars that they feel they need to stay in. And I'm afraid that that might happen with Biden. Biden seems to have really laid down a marker in terms of getting out of Afghanistan uh, by 9-11. 
uh, but we'll see. There's a lot of violence erupting there today. Uh, I would imagine that there are a number of uh, military people who are approaching Biden at this very moment and saying, hey, we might need to stay. Uh, this thing is not looking too good. Things are falling apart. And it'll be a matter of, of Biden really holding his ground and saying, I said, we're getting out and we're getting out. Yeah, I was going to ask just if you had any insight about why something like this could happen, like how a memo like this could be, you know, lost through communication. But I was going to say maybe it has something to do about Trump just not really knowing enough about foreign policy, but it also probably has a little bit about a little to do with the fact that generals will just flat out lie because we, we have examples of, of officers or generals lying about how many troops are in a certain area. I don't know if you remember, but, and I think it was, was it Syria? Um, yeah. He lied about how many troops were in Syria to Trump. So I have yeah. no idea. So, uh, th so there's two things. One, I do feel like, I mean, you know, the whole idea that there was a coup against Trump in the Pentagon is kind of tongue in cheek because ultimately what happened was that he dashed off this memo, uh, Doug McGregor and Trump's confidants crafted, you know, a special order, an official order. And when the generals uh, got wind of it, and even his, his acting defense secretary, Christopher Miller, got their hands on it, they went back to Trump and they convinced him that it wasn't doable. And so I think much to his, you know, frustration, he wasn't able to rally, um, I don't want to say enough courage, but he just, he, he, he probably didn't feel like he had the best arguments against it. And what they were saying was, if you leave Afghanistan this abruptly, it'll be another Saigon and this is going to be on your hands. And I, you know, I believe, and this was even in the Axios reporting that this was always something that had troubled uh, Trump and had, had sort of been staying his hand this idea that he would be blamed if you had these images of, or these Saigon-like images of people, you know, clinging to helicopters, getting out of Kabul or whatever, you, you know, you, you imagine whatever scenario. Mm -hmm. But I think he probably said, yeah, uh, okay, I'm, I, I just can't do it. And that's how the memo got changed to the 2,500 troops coming home instead and so on and so forth. So I think part of it, it was that, that, that Trump wasn't completely confident in going up against his generals. He was in awe of these military men from the start. And I think that was always a problem. I, you know, he, he talked a tough game and we have plenty of examples like Bob Woodward's book about how he clashed with his generals at these meetings and everything. But I think at the very um, heart of it that he didn't feel absolutely confident in going toe-to-toe -to -toe with them on these military issues and so he caved at the last minute yeah. and i think that's why uh the axios writers jonathan swan and i think it was zachary Bousset had said you know said, said something to the effect of like and this was the last time that you know trump had caved on his pledge to end forever wars and um because it ultimately was his decision but you talked about the the shell game that had been played and the lies that had been conveyed to Trump, you know, on Syria. 
and you, I think you're referring to James Jeffrey, who was the U.S. envoy to Syria, who after he left the post, pretty much bragged to the media that he and, and the military had basically colluded to sort of shifting numbers around whenever they had to talk to Trump about how many troops we actually had in Syria. And he called it a shell game. And it's really unfortunate because there was no repercussions for that. We still don't know how many troops we have in Syria because the military is not giving us that information. And so we have people who like uh, the project on government oversight have been having to go to lawyers and sue the government to try to get this information on how many, how many forces we have in these areas, including Syria. And so here we have a US envoy who's supposed to be working for Trump, basically bragging that he was hiding that information from the president. And to, to, to make even matters more sickeningly worse, uh, James Jeffrey just went and joined the West Exec Consulting firm, which is a consulting firm started by Michelle Flournoy and Anthony Blinken, you know, to basically help the private sector get contracts uh, from the DOD, like high level, you know, clients like Google and, and, you know, the rest of Silicon Valley and Amazon and who knows who, because they won't give you their full client list. But it's like it's 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 failing up. It's typical Washington. So this guy brags about lying to the president, and now he's got a, a cushy job at one of the most formidable consulting firms in Washington D.C. So give it a name. <laughs> right. Yeah. And the last few guests I've had on to talk about foreign policy, I've asked them if they think that we're going to leave by September 11th because everything that's going on and all of this. You know, everything that we're talking about right now just makes me less confident that we are. So how do you feel about that? Well, I, I it, let me just um, apologize because I got the writer wrong for the Axios mm -hmm. piece. His name is Basu, okay. Zachary Basu and Jonathan Swan were the authors on that fantastic piece. It's called Trump's War with His Generals. Uh, but as as far as Afghanistan goes, I am very I have really mixed feelings about it because after following this war uh, on terror after 9-11 for close to 20 years now, I feel like there has been uh, so many fits and starts in terms of getting us out of these wars. Now, we did get out of Iraq and, you know, President Bush had actually signed a status of forces agreement to get out of Iraq before he left office. And, you know, President Obama has been blamed for, for all sorts of bad things that happened after he pulled troops out. But really it was George Bush who, who basically signed on the dotted line and got us out. As you know, we had to go back in because of ISIS, which we helped to create. So it's, is there ever an end? We don't know. Uh, we see in, in Iraq how there wasn't an end and we had to go back in there and we had to, to provide air support for the Iraqi military who we had trained, um, but they could not handle their own security against ISIS. So we see a similar situation in Afghanistan in which we know that the Taliban is more formidable. Um, it is more willing to fight. It is, it's, it's just a tougher adversary than the Afghan security forces who we spent billions of dollars arming up and training over the last 20 years. But 
we know from what our own generals tell us that they're, they're not fully equipped to take care of their own security. So will we have to go back in there if the whole place implodes? Uh, will we have to go back in there if ISIS, for example, which is already conducting terrorist attacks there, there was a bombing on Friday uh, at a mosque and not sure, uh, I, I don't believe that they had uh, officially taken credit for it, but all the signs uh, point to ISIS and they've been, I think they were responsible for cutting off a power grid in Kabul over the weekend. So there is a problem that the key and what we are saying at the Quincy Institute, and I believe is, 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 is just common sense and very important is that if we stay, we can't guarantee that any of that's not gonna happen anyway. And that's the, that's the key right there. Um, we spent 20 years in that country. We spent trillions of dollars. Uh, we have, you know, we, we have basically sacrificed our, our men and our women that we sent over there to fight and it's not working and we can't spend another year, much less 20 years doing the same thing to get the same result, which is um, unfortunately failure. And I think the Afghans know that it, it, it'll only get better if it is if the whole effort, whether it be the security effort or the government effort and rebuilding their government is done by Afghans, not Americans. And it's, it's gonna be painful and it already is painful, but that does not mean that we have to turn around and go and do the same thing over and over again. Um, I don't think the American people want that. I don't think the Afghans want that. Uh, so, you know, I, I think the next several months are gonna be key the question is, will Biden take that same approach and w will he resist pressure to stay? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And then to talk about another thing um, in the other article that you wrote, another dysfunctional relationship here, your headline reads, it's time to put this dysfunctional U.S.-Israel relationship to the test. Um, and today, I think actually uh, Biden approved a $735 million arms sale to Israel. I don't know if that was today, but um, I saw some notifications. Do you want to just talk about um, what you wrote there? Well, I mean, obviously responding to all of the violence in the Gaza Strip and in, in, in Israeli cities today, which is ongoing. And you know, I, I, what I wanted to convey is it's very important. We give uh, $3.8 billion a year in military aid. So that doesn't include any other aid in military aid to Israel every year uh, for a total thus far of $146 billion. And yet we don't expect anything in return. Uh, it's completely unconditional. And we give plenty of aid to other countries, not so much not, you know, no other aid to, to countries equals what we give to, uh, to Israel. But we expect things. Um, when we don't, we get what we're seeing in Israel right now. We have been committed to a peace process there as, as a nation since forever. And that has deteriorated over the last eight years because President Trump for the last four years has made it overtly clear that his thumb was on the scale of Israel 
that it would that we would continue to give aid, we would continue to maintain their qualitative military edge over other countries by giving them more far more superior weapons and missile defense than any other country in in the region. Uh, and and without anything ex expectations in return. When I say expectations, meaning um, to pursue the two-state solution, to not continue building illegal settlements and annexing Palestinian lands, um, to pursue diplomacy over or over a militarized approach to everything that was happening with the Palestinians, and. I'm sorry, it's, I, I'm not surprised to see Benjamin Netanyahu basically saying, well, I can do whatever I want uh, because the Americans will give me money and not expect anything in return. And I think not only has that created an absolutely um, uh, devastating atmosphere for the Palestinians because they feel like we're not fair brokers in this peace process that we had been committed to for all these years. But it's it's maintaining this instability in the region. And we're paying for that. And when you think about it, there's no incentive to do things differently. So not only do you feel do you have this 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 unsettling violence, this cycle of violence that's happening every several years in Israel, but you have the instability in Syria, uh, you have in Lebanon, you have uh, the, the Israelis are openly meddling in our attempts to get back into the nuclear deal with Iran. They've based all but said that they will try to sabotage it. They have assassinated Iranian scientists they uh, shut down parts of their nuclear facilities uh, a couple weeks ago. So they're meddling in our attempts to pursue diplomacy in the region. They keep us mired there, you know, with all of the inst instability that they, they foment. And then on top of it, it's coming out of my wallet and your wallet, uh, taxpayer money, billions of dollars that could go to healthcare that could go for building bridges and infrastructure and pre-K for kids and you name it, you know, cheaper pharmaceuticals. It sounds facetious, but I'm thinking when you're looking at all the problems that we have in the United States today, whether it be, you know, fiscal, uh, political, you know, cultural, I mean, we're going through a, a lot of spasms of, of change and polarization here, right here, but yet we are, we're, we are paying for the for the dumpster fire that we see in the Middle East, and it's not to say we take the the aid away necessarily. It's not to say that we we put our thumb on the scale of the Palestinians in, in, instead, but it's to say, listen, we are we are your ally. We will always protect you if you get attacked tomorrow by Egypt. We're there for you. That's that, that's part of the pact that we have, but we're not going to just give you a blank check. To, to do whatever you want. And we're certainly not gonna let you, allow you to, to meddle in our business and our diplomacy because we're actually trying to work things out. So maybe we can get out of the Middle East at some point and let the Middle East take care of its own business. But the more that they're they're doing this BS, you know, in, with, with the Palestinians and they, and, they, and they poke and they poke and they poke and then 
violence breaks out and they say, well, wait, we got rockets. We, we, we've got to, we've just got to destroy the Gaza Strip now. We've been through this before. And I, and I feel like we get blamed through the American anti-Americanism in the region and, and for good reason, because we're paying for it. Yeah. And on that point specifically, I think that it's also, you, you cite how it puts U.S. interests at risk, but it also puts the United States citizens at risk. Um, when the U.S. government in name says that it's doing these things representing the American people. I mean, we have Osama bin Laden citing our support for Israel yeah. and all of these things for the reason that he attacked us. So I think that that's another aspect of this where um, the US government pretends to have our support in doing so. Um, and the Israelis pretend to as well. Um, but you also cited David Petraeus, which I found interesting in that article and in his argument for um, this violating U.S. interest. So do you want to kind of talk about that? Yeah, I mean, uh, as I mentioned in that piece that David Petraeus said out loud, what all of us know and what our own military and people in our, in our government know, that our continued uh, support or unconditional support for Israel through aid, through the way we talk, through our actions in the, U U the uh, UN Security Council, have repercussions. They, it, you know, it, it invites blowback against America in the region. It puts our, our men and women who are serving in the Middle East at risk. Um, and it also guarantees that we, will that, that we will never get out of there because we will always be called uh, to support you know, our, our partners there, give them more weapons, what more weapons means we're fully entrenched in, 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 in training and um, servicing. I mean, it, it is a cycle and he recognized this and he, he, was, he received blowback himself, you know, for being anti-Israel, but he's not working for them. He's working for us. And as a general, he saw the, the repercussions of this dysfunctional relationship you know, because he was serving as the CENTCOM commander at the time. And he knew he had, we had troops there. We still have troops over there who are, are vulnerable to, to anti-Americanism because we are seen as being favorable, you know, to one over the other. And I know there are plenty of people in this country, particularly uh, Republicans and hawks, uh, who say, well, of course we prefer Israel over or over the Arabs in this case. We, we support their right to exist, their right to defend themselves. And I'll go back. We will always have their back. We have a special relationship. We have the alliance. If they get attacked, we will be there. But on this level, we know that they have a far superior military. We paid for it. I mean, they, they not only have a, a far superior military, they have an arsenal of nuclear weapons. Uh, these puny rockets that come in from the Gaza Strip, 90%, they said, are falling short. Israeli missiles don't fall short. They obliterate buildings. They leave people homeless, hospitalized, or dead. And this happens Every, every several years we see this and they say, well, we're just, we, we, we're just protecting ourselves. I think we need to take the, the blinders off or whatever you call the glasses off because 
this is disproportionate. And when it comes down to it, they see these weapons um, are American made. Uh, and, you know, I, I just feel like we, we need to, we, we need to see things the way we really are. And it really is. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no problem. And then um, I, I was just curious if you think that it kind of is a principle that um, U.S. intervention in Israel or U.S. Interve intervention anywhere kind of just distorts incentives. Like, is this something that is seen, um, at least in your experience, more than just in is Israel? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things that we've been really hammering at at, at, the, at the Quincy Institute is that in order to... It, we will never get out of the Middle East until we allow these countries to take on their own security. As long as we are guaranteeing this sort of security blanket or security architecture or a guarantee that will always be there, these countries will continue to fight amongst themselves, uh, take more aggressive approaches to, to one another, um, use their weapons, uh, against each other and against their own people because they because we will continue funding them we will continue sending over all our best weapons and you know that that part of that goes back to the very powerful defense industry in this country which is constantly pushing and pushing and pushing but when you when you strip all that away you realize that nothing is going to change because the incentives don't change. And right now there's no incentive for these countries to um, work with each other, to explore diplomatic channels uh, because uh, for all the, all the reasons why I explained and, and one, of, one of the best examples of this, you know, of, of seeing a sort of a light at the end of the tunnel is that Saudi Arabia sensing that we're not there for them forever they got this message from Biden recently. They got this message from Trump towards the end are starting to reach out to their enemies. They had meetings and talks with Iran recently. Uh, they've been reaching out to Qatar to end the embargo there. Uh, they've been on the verge of you know, war with Iran for some time, particularly over, this, uh, over Yemen. They're, they are now seeking you know, hopefully uh, an end to that war and a ceasefire with the Houthis in Yemen. And so things are happening. Now, um, are, other, are other dynamics at play? Sure. Could it all turn around tomorrow and, you know, turn to hell in a handbasket tomorrow? Of course. But the point is, you know, when Trump was president, he basically told uh, Saudi Arabia that he, they, we weren't going to retaliate for the attacks uh, the alleged attacks uh, on their uh, facilities by the Iranians. And they were like, ooh, we thought you'd come to our rescue and start bombing Iran. And Trump's like, no, I'm not going there. And he also started pulling out some, you know, Patriot missiles. And then Biden came in and said, well, we're going to pull out some more troops. Uh, we got your back, but we're not going to support you, you know, pummeling uh, the Houthis in Yemen anymore. We want to get out of that war. And so they what do they do? They're starting to talk to people. And so, I mean, that's just a small example, but I think it's important. The Egyptians and the Turks are talking now. And I think the more that they get the signal that we're leaving and we're, we're no longer, um, you know, the big cheese and leading their security, you know, um, 
you know, in the Middle East, you know, that they got to do it. They got to do things their own way. And so I think that Israel needs to get the same tough love talk, but that's where it gets tricky because no one in Washington wants to have that talk. The Democrats, the, uh, the Republicans, certainly. Now you do see a bunch of Democrats this week have been really railing against Biden for not being tougher on the Israelis over the human rights issue. You even have some Democrats who are talking about scaling back the aid to Israel over human rights. So there, there is a conversation going on here that hasn't been going on over the last 20 years. And that's very hopeful because if Democrats can put enough pressure on Biden to, to have that tough love talk, that's a good thing. Yeah. And it might not be them fully rejecting like the Carter doctrine or anything, but at least it's a step in that direction. It's a step in that direction because a lot of those Democrats are also saying the same thing about sending arms to UAE and sending arms to Saudi. And they're saying, why are we giving these arms to these countries if they're using them against these uh, civilians in Yemen or to repress their own populations? You know, so I think, yeah, I think there there is some there are some very positive signs that uh, people in his own party are willing to stand up to him on this and not just give Biden a blank check uh, on and on issues of war. Yeah, well, I mean, if there's anything else that you want to say that we didn't cover on, please please bring it up and then we can let you go. Yeah, I mean, I I just encourage anybody who's listening to go to our website responsiblestatecraft.org for some really uh, great articles. Uh, we have opinion pieces. We have regional analysis. We have some politics. And, you know, uh, I feel like we were just really on a tear because we were very emboldened that there is an audience out there that is just starving for um, new ideas and a fresh take on foreign policy. And so I would encourage that and also go to the Quincy Institute website, quincyinst.org, which uh, will give you some more idea about who we are, who our, our scholars and our staff and our board are and what our goals as a think tank. We, we try to be completely transparent. We've been very uh, critical of other think tanks that don't uh, disclose who their funders are, because as you know, in this town, there are so many people getting money from dark places, whether it be foreign actors or uh, people and, and foundations with, with political agendas, and which is fine on the face of it, but they don't disclose that money. So when they uh, issue reports about staying in Afghanistan, for example, who's paying for that? Are they, are they mouthing uh, the tune of somebody who's been paying them, or is that their honest assessment of the situation? And so as a think tank, we have been really banging the drum on, on transparency because I, we think when we know that in this town, uh, the prevailing message of intervention, of this sort of like global liberal order that we're supposed to be protecting is really uh, bought and paid for by funding sources ranging from the government to the defense industry to foreign countries. And we think it's um, important that the American people know where all of these messages are coming from. Yeah, of course. And everyone, their, their stuff is really great. I'll link to everything in the description of these podcasts. And then 
also link it to your information as well. Great. Awesome. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thanks for having me. It's the weekend, we can let go. It's the full send.